1992, my wife and I felt called to come here to Kansas City. We pastored a church in South Carolina for a while, and we felt called to come here. And so that meant a move. And moves are not a lot of fun, are they? Every time I move, I say, that's it. We're never going to move again because it can be terrible. So you do all the things you do when you're about to move. And I called, and I got some bids as far as moving lines. And they came, and they would, you know, inspect the house. And so we chose our best bid. And so we're all set to move here to Kansas City. We have a window in which we know that this big truck will, you know, come and such. And so they said, you know, we're going to come on either maybe Thursday or Friday, but it's almost always on Thursday morning, but we do have this window. We said, that's good because we have to be like out of our house, you know, by late, late Friday night. They said, that's fine. We'll be there on Thursday morning. So Thursday morning, it's the big day. We're just about to move. I'm so excited. So I'm out in front and just watching for that big van to come down the street. And I watch at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock and 10, I call and say, hey, you said like first thing in the morning, just want to make sure that you're coming. Oh, absolutely, Mr. Dodd, we're going to come. And it gets to be noon and 1 and 2, and I call again, hey, you know, the van's not here yet. Uh, you, Mr. Dodd, we're coming. I called back around, around 5 or so, and they said, you know what, just had a little bit of some strange things today, but we're going to be, be, be there first thing tomorrow morning. I said, great, because we have to be out of here on Friday night. Don't forget that. So that next morning, I'm up, you know, early again and out front and watching for the van, and I call at 8 o'clock, I called at 9 o'clock, I called at 10, I called at 11. I mean, I call every hour. I called at 2, and by this point, I'm a little bit angry. And I'm not just angry, to be honest with you, with this moving company. I don't want to mention their name because it would be very, very disparaging. But their business was a big boat on the side of their truck that looked like the pilgrims came in it. But anyway, other than that... I, I was a little bit angry with God because I'm thinking, God, you called us to Kansas City. We absolutely know that. So if you're in charge of this, what's going on? I mean, this is an absolute nightmare at this point because I don't know if they can pack up the truck that quickly. So I'm just kind of saying, God, where are you at this point? So I called back and I spoke with the guy that, 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 that was there, you know, actually the movers, and I was just angry and agitated. I said, listen, it's Friday afternoon. You're supposed to be here yesterday morning. And the guy said exactly these words. He said, Mr. Dodd, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've been lying to you. We lost the van yesterday in Georgia, and we don't know where the van is. We can't contact our driver. He's not answering our calls. We can't find the van. We're not coming. We've got to be out of the house in just a couple of hours. So I'm just in a panic. I'm thinking, what do we do? I'm thinking, okay, first of all, let's call up the church. Let's call up the youth group and let's get everybody over here that we can just to take everything out of the house and put stuff in the front yard. And uh, that'll be like one major step. And I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to pack a truck well, you know, because I'm telling you, it's like a real professional thing. So I start to call up every mover. I mean, I'm just call, you know, just at the very top of the phone book and call every mover saying, hey, is there any way that you could stop off at our house and help us pack up and I'll pay a nice wage here? But everybody said, you know what? It's Friday afternoon. We're, we're tired. It's been a long week. No. The last group I called was based in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I call them up. I said, listen, you're the last ones I'm calling. I'm desperate. Would you please come and help me pack up the truck? And the guy says, you sound like a nice guy. So yes, we'll come. Then I have to find a truck. I've got no truck. So I start to call every U-Haul in the area because I need a big truck. So, you know, call U-Haul. No, we're out of big trucks. Call this U-Haul. I called one way, way, way far, far away. And they said, you know what? We have one big truck left. I said, I'll take it. Don't rent it to anybody. I'll take it. So I had a friend drive me out there. 
That was the first sign I started to feel good because you know how like every state is on a truck? This truck said Kansas. And I thought, well, we're going to Kansas. That's a good sign. So I drive this truck back home. And, and I mean, these kids are pulling everything out of our house. We've got girls, you know, 12 years old with our piano, trying to move our piano out of our house. It was just unbelievable. It was, I mean, just our whole yard is full. So I'm waiting now for these packers to come. And all of a sudden, this truck comes down our street. And as it comes down the street, once again, I'm feeling a little bit angry with God. Just kind of, God, where are you? God, this doesn't make sense. And God, if we're not out of the house by midnight, we're going to have to pay this fine because of our closing. And this just, this just feels wrong. God, where are you? Anyway, this truck comes down the street. And it's a big white truck. And on the side, blue lettering. But it doesn't have the name of their moving company on the side of their truck. On the side of their truck, it says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. And I just kind of sat down in the front yard and thought, really? All right, God, maybe I'm getting the message here. And I mean, I asked these guys, why is a verse on your truck and not the name of your company? They said, we just really felt that God wanted us to Put that verse on our truck. It's an amazing verse. Romans 8.28. I love the fact that you guys have been talking about Paul and Paul's theology and Paul's life, and you've looked at his calling and the fact that they are scattered and sent on these mission trips, and you've looked at some conflict in Paul's life. You talked about the Jerusalem Council. So you've talked more and more about Paul. I love the book of Romans. I think that's maybe Paul's masterpiece in one sense, where he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things. And in the book of Romans, I think the chapter 8 might be the pinnacle. As a matter of fact, that's called that by even people, you know, by lots of theologians like Martin Luther, says that's the high point of all of Scripture. Chapter 8 says, we are more than conquerors. We oftentimes don't know what to pray, that we can just, just cry out and the Spirit hears us. Who can separate us from God's love? Absolutely nobody. God grants us a spirit of sonship and we can cry out and say, Abba, Father. That's all in Romans chapter 8. And then this amazing passage, Romans 8.28. And we know, we absolutely know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. Now, it's interesting, when we read that passage, we really don't read the word all things, do we? We replace it with the phrase bad things. Because it's only a verse usually that we use in the midst of tragedy, right? In the midst of hard times, we say, hey, let's look at Romans 8, 28. We don't use it in the midst of all things. It's not like, you know, you're out with, with a friend and she says, guess what? I just got engaged. And you say, wow, hey, Romans 8, 28. You don't, you, you don't say that then. It's only in the midst of heartache and in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of things going very poorly that you say, hey, Romans 8, 28. So we read that verse and we think, okay, the way that I read this is bad things We'll work together for good, as I understand good, in my lifetime, the way that I think it should turn out. But that verse, that's not really what it says. You see, Paul is the type who's saying, you know what? In all things rejoice. He says that in Philippians 4. He says in First, you know, First Thessalonians 5, you know what? In, in all things give thanks. But that's hard. 
Because personally, I've been through some tragedies in my life. And so I think about the death of my brother-in-law and, you know, the death of my parents and some hard things in life. And you struggle through them and you think, really, all things? But what God gives us in Romans chapter 8 is an incredible, amazing, comforting promise. So I want to look today at this promise. We're going to kind of do it in three waves. First of all, the fact that God is in complete control to the fact that we've got to have the right perspective on this verse. It's this amazing, long-term, eternal perspective. And then third, the fact that, you know what, when we love God, it's the hope of the gospel. So first of all, God is in control. We would love for God to say, you know what, on your life, nothing evil will overcome you in your lifetime. But in one sense, that is what God has said. He has said absolutely that through his word. You see, Romans 8.28 is one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture. But here's what's really strange about the verse. It's almost become taboo because it feels a little patronizing at times. It feels a little glib. It feels a little trite. It feels very shallow. I've had friends in the midst of tragedy say to me, if somebody walks in here right now and says, hey, Romans 8.28, you know what? I'll punch their lights out. I don't want to hear Romans 8.28 right now. So we almost stay away from the verse. That, that bothers me because it's one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. And I started to think about this more and more about five years ago. I had a dear friend who went through a real tragedy, and he, he lost his son. And I stopped off at his house, and I was with him, and we were just weeping together. And I wanted to share with him Romans 8.28, but something held me back. And I just thought, I just, it just feels wrong to share that. And so I didn't. But that bothered me. So I began to just explore more and more, just dig into this verse. Because it is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. But here's what I really believe. If there is one verse that we question in all of Scripture, if there's one verse that we really doubt, if we're honest, this is the verse. Because we think, really? All things, all things work together for good. So 9-11 works together for good. Murder, rape, abuse, infertility, depression, lung cancer, those things work together for good, really? I mean, some of you have lost spouses, some of you have lost children, some of you have lost grandchildren. A lot of you have lost parents. You say, well, you know, where was God when these things happened to me? Where was God when I lost my job? That was really used for good, and we really have a hard time with this. We struggle with it. But here's the truth. For those who follow Jesus Christ, either this verse is absolutely true, and every tragedy is ultimately a blessing, or God is a liar and the word of God isn't true. Those are the only two options in this passage. You see, this is a key doctrine. This is the providence of God. It's a hard one. But the providence of God gives us great comfort because there is no greater promise in all of Scripture. And the promise is God is in control. That's the promise in this verse. God is in control. He's going to use this. He's going to use all of this. So my wife and I came here, and it was amazing because when we moved here to Kansas City, the house that we thought we had did not exactly work out. And so we needed to have those, the, the, those extra funds that we saved because we didn't use that nice van line to actually pay, you know, pay for things like storage. So it worked out amazingly. 
And we came here and we planted a church, and by God's grace it grew. And like any church, there were some great times and there were some very hard times. One very, very hard time was we had a young gal in the church, just, you know, so much life in her, was killed in a tragic auto accident. And it was really hard for our church. And after she died, there was this bizarre conflict because her parents had just gotten divorced, and her dad is in this other church, and her mom's in our church, and her mom says, you know what, you know what, Jimmy, I want you to actually speak at the funeral. But her dad said, no, 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 I want my pastor to speak at the funeral. So we had this weird thing where the parents were in this fight over which pastor would actually speak at the funeral. So after a while, they said, well, let's have both of our pastors speak at the funeral, and you know, the, let's just be done with it. So I tried to call up this other pastor. I mean, I tried you know, just day after day, and I could not reach this guy. So it was really weird because we met for the first time actually at the funeral. So we're just about to walk up there to, you know, speak and lead, and I'm Jimmy, and he says, I'm so-and-so, and he says, I tell you what, I'll go first, and then you go. It's like, okay. You know, we didn't really talk about anything. Now, it's in a church which is packed with about 500 teenagers. She was very popular, and there are just scores of teens there, and there are just, you know, weeping and sobbing. It was extremely emotional. And this other pastor stands up, and I promise you the first words he said were this. God lost control. This could not have been God's will. This could not have been God's plan. God must have turned his back for just a moment. I'm on the stage. I'm next to my wife, and I squeeze her hand so hard. And I'm thinking, I want to say exactly the opposite of what he just said. I want to say exactly the opposite, and I'm thinking, this is an incredibly awkward situation. It must have been absent the day they talked about this in seminary, because I don't remember them saying this. When you got two pastors on the platform, they're going to say exactly the opposite thing. So he just goes on and on, gives no hope whatsoever. God lost control. God was not in this. This was just a terrible mistake, and Amanda's life was snuffed out in the midst of her journey in life, and she won't be able to get married and have kids and do all these things. He just went on and on. No hope whatsoever. So then he's done, and I stand up, and the first words I say were, God did not lose control. God did not lose control. God is in complete control. And then I shared this story with them. I said, you know, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, and I love all sports. I love the Olympics, and it's amazing how I watch sports in the you know, midst of that that I might not watch ordinarily. I don't, you know, I mean, I don't watch a lot of swimming or gymnastics or track and field. But if it's the Olympics, I watch those things. So you take track and field, and I love to watch all the races, and it's just amazing to me. And one thing that confuses me, though, a lot of the Olympics is this. How is it that you can run for 100 meters in about 10 seconds or less, and you win your race, and you run a marathon and you run for over two hours, and you win your race, and you get the same prize. That does not seem fair to me. I think if you run in a dash, you should win a very small gold medal. And if you win the marathon, you should get a massive gold medal. It should be proportional to how much time you had to spend. That just seems fair, right? Why do they give the same prize to everybody? It's because you ran the race which was appointed for you to run. I said, listen, We wish Amanda had run a marathon. She didn't. She ran a very, very short race. But she did not stumble and fall in the midst of this longer race, which God intended for her to run. The day that God called her home, the day that she had that wreck, she crossed 
the finish line and then fell into God's arms, her race complete. She finished the race that God appointed for her to run. We don't understand it. It's hard for us to grasp. But listen, God is in control. And he will use this. He will use this in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. The other pastor and I were supposed to go to the graveside to do then the graveside. He left and didn't even show up at the graveside. And at the graveside, my wife and I had a chance to speak with dozens and dozens of teenagers because they found hope in knowing the truth that God is in control. Second, we have to know that there is a real eternal perspective here. And if you don't have this perspective right, you're going to miss a lot that's in this passage. First of all, the passage does not say that God is the author of tragedy. It's not, it does not say that God is behind all of these tragedies because God gave us a free will when we sin and tragedy is a direct result of sin. Two, the passage does not say that everything that, that, that will take place in our life that happens to us are good things. Unquestionably, bad things happen to us, things that almost crush our spirit, things that can discourage us, things that can be unbelievably painful. But listen, these are short-term bad things, not ultimate bad things. Third, the passage does not say that everything will turn out okay in this lifetime. It does not say that by the time you die, everything is going to be fine and everything will be rosy and you'll understand the God's purpose behind everything. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that we will avoid suffering in this life. It doesn't mean that we will say, and everybody lived happily ever after. It does mean this. That God is so supremely in charge of this world that all things that happen to Christians are ordered and redeemed in a way so that they serve our ultimate good and God's ultimate glory. One more time. Everything that happens to us in this life, because God is in complete control, these things will be used for our ultimate good and for God's ultimate glory, but we might not be able to see it in this lifetime. Back in the 1980s, my wife was really into things like cross-stitching. I don't know if you guys can think back to, I don't know if it was like a big fad. I don't know if anybody is, you know, still cross-stitches. That man right back there does. Thank you for raising your hand. Anyway, uh, you know, but my, my wife was really into cross-stitching. She just loved it. And you know, that there were those who would cross-stitch and were such perfectionists that the front and the back would look like almost exactly the same. Uh, that was not my wife. She had phenomenal fronts. I mean, she would just do these amazing things, but the back always looked like a real jumbled mess. It was like, oh, gosh, what's... So she, she would sit at night, and she would cross-stitch, and I would read, but I would be staring at the back of her project, and I'd be saying, what are you doing over there? And she'd say, look, and I'd go, oh, my, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful picture. It's amazing. There would be other times I'd say, what are you doing over there? And she'd say... Just trust me. Just trust me. You see, that's what God says to us a lot of times. There are those amazingly rare times where we go through some real tragedy and we're like, God, why? And he says, you know what? I want to explain why. Look, and we say, oh, I get it. I see it. But there's many, many more times in which we can't see it. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, as a pastor. Pastor, why did God allow this? Why did God allow this tragedy in my life? Why did God allow my, you know, this or this sickness or this accident? Why? And my answer is almost always exactly the same. 
I have no idea. But I do know this. That God is in control. And ultimately, this will be used for your ultimate good and for God's ultimate glory. You see, there are times in which God kind of turns the whole picture around, and we can see why. 1949, Christians are thrown out of China. And we're told that they're going to absolutely slaughter every Christian in the entire country because they want to wipe out Christians in China. And our hearts break, and we think, God, how could you possibly allow this? And then 27 years later, China opens back up. Christians go in, and they find out that there has been an incredible revival that took place in China. And God used those 27 years to absolutely spread Christianity all throughout the country. And so we can look and we can say, you know what, we understand why God used that for amazing good. 1956, five young missionaries go down to spend some time with with some folks that they knew were lost and were in need of Christ back in the hard parts of Ecuador. And they shared Jesus with the Alcas, and then these five young men are slaughtered. And we think, how could God possibly use that? But God takes the stories of Pete Fleming and Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the others, and God uses that story. And tens of thousands of people go and they get involved in missions and they go to the mission field and we can see that's why God used those things. But there are many, many, many more stories that we don't see why. There are so many stories that we just can't understand. Why would God possibly allow that? If we had time, and this would take weeks and weeks and weeks, we could go all throughout Scripture, and we could look at stories in which there would be points in the story in Scripture in which they would say, this seemed to be such a terrible moment. This seemed to be the worst possible moment in my life. But now as I look back over it, I would never change one thing. Jacob would say, hey, here's a night when I slept on a stone pillow, but you know what, though? I wouldn't change it for anything. Joseph would point to two years in a prison, and he would say, yeah, that was a tough time, but I wouldn't change one thing. And then Abraham would point to the top of a mountain. He would say, that was the most painful time in my life, but I wouldn't change a thing. Moses would point to 40 years on the backside of the desert. David would point to times of sorrow and tears in the night. Peter would look at the time when he turned his back upon the Lord. Paul would say, I was shipwrecked, and I thought my life would absolutely end, but that was the thing that God used to take me ultimately to Rome. John the Apostle would say, I would point to my time on the island of Patmos when I was exiled. Jesus Christ would likely point to the cross. You see, at times, God's blessings are poured out in very bitter cups. We have to acknowledge In all things, God is in charge. Every single thing that happens, God is working into a plan for our good and for his glory. That's our hope. So then thirdly, to love God. What's the hope of the gospel? This is a doubly conditional promise. You see, this is not for everybody. Oftentimes I hear folks say, well, Romans 8.28, God will use this for good. And yet I know that those people don't love Jesus. This is a conditional promise. This is for believers. There are two major conditions. It says this promise is true, but only for those who love God and only for those who've been called according to his purpose. So it's very conditional. First of all, it's for those who love God. You might say, well, I think I love God, but I don't know for sure because every time I come to church, you know what, to be completely honest with you, I feel a bit condemned. I feel 
I feel dirty and I feel like things aren't right in my life and I can't imagine how God could possibly want somebody like me to be a part of his family. Paul writes about this in Romans 7. At the very end, he's saying, you know, these things which I hate, I keep doing, and the things I hate, which I want to stop, I just can't stop doing these things. And he says, who shall rescue me from the body of this death? Paul is just crying out saying, I hate these things about my life. I can't fix them. And then in Romans 8, this amazing chapter, it starts off with one of the most glorious promises in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear that again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. He sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. There's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It means that in Jesus Christ, you are both fully known and fully loved. That's everybody's dream, that you would fully know me and fully love me. Our greatest fear is that you will know me and not love me. In Jesus Christ, you are both fully known and fully loved. That's that amazing promise for the believer. And then it says, if you are called by God, if you are called by God according to his purpose... Why does, why does Paul add that? Because he wants to make sure that we understand that we are not called according to our purpose, but we are called according to God's purpose. And he explains this in verse 29 and following. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn amongst lots and lots of brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified... He also glorified. What does that mean? That if you begin the journey, there is an absolute guarantee that God will take you through to the end of the journey. You're safe in him. Everybody that he calls will ultimately be glorified because that call starts with the Lord. Why is this so important? Because if we understand that it begins with God, we understand God is sovereign, God is in complete control. When you go through tragedy, and everybody does, you will not have anger towards God, but you'll be able to say, you know what, I don't understand this, but I know that God is in control. He's been in control in every aspect of my life from start to finish. You see, there's a plan, and the plan is very simply this. God is totally helpful we are totally helpless. You see, this is amazing confidence that we have. And the confidence is that there is a sovereign God who is in charge of every aspect of our life. And there's no question, some of you here have lived painful lives. You've lived very hard lives. And there might be some bitterness. There might be some, some anger towards God. But our assurance is this. It's not that we hope that these things are true. Romans 8.28 says, and we know. We absolutely know. And here's my problem. Even though that's a promise from God, I forget it all the time. And I need to be in fellowship in places like this to be reminded over and over again of what God has done for me. Now, I hope that you don't think less of me, although I realize that many of the men here will, when I say that one movie that really gripped my heart in a big way, and I'm not sure exactly why, although I think I'm starting to have a little bit more of a sense, was the book, wait for it, The Notebook. 
I know. The women like me more, the men like me less. That happens a lot. Get, give me a chance here, men, all right? There's some men really, really scowling at me right now. That was interesting. All right, anyway, let me explain myself here. Give me a chance. The notebook is a pretty amazing story. It starts off, and there's this older man, and he shows up at, at this place. We think it's a nursing home. And he comes in, and he sits down with this older woman, and he begins to share with her the story. And she's very, very standoffish, and she says, I don't want to hear the story. And then this nurse walks over and says, you know what? He's here every day. He comes, and he just reads to you. And so we're starting to get the sense that this older man comes, and he's in this place where there's a lot of patients that have got, that, you know, that they've got Alzheimer's, that, you know, that they've got a little, you know, they're not all there. And it's just, it's, it's very heartbreaking because they've got dementia. But this man begins to share with this woman this story. He tells her the story about this town in the south. And he says, you know what, it's summertime, and there's a boy who lives there. And um, he's not very smart, and he's not educated, and he's poor. He comes from a very, very broken family. And this beautiful girl comes to actually, you know, just actually spend some time in this small town, and she's got everything that he does. And she's from a very, very wealthy family, and she's very educated, and you know, she's got a mom and dad, all of those things. And this young boy and this young girl, they, they fall in love. And even though everything seems to be against them, this boy relentlessly pursues her. And ultimately, ultimately, they fall in love. And she has to go home after the summer. And he promises her. He says, you know what, I'll write you every day. And he does. But the girl's mom doesn't like this boy. And she actually takes every letter and she hides it. And so this girl thinks, well, he never actually loved me. And the boy thinks, well, she hasn't written back, so I don't know if she actually ever loved me. And it just seems like everything is against them. And then he has to go to war, and it just pushes them further and further apart. And it's at this point in the movie that you learn that this older man that tells this story, this is his story. And, and, and I mean, this old gal, this is their whole story. And ultimately, ultimately, it's amazing that they get back together. But as this man shares this story with this, with this woman who has got dementia and cannot remember, we come to the very end of the movie. So if you haven't seen this, get your Kleenex ready. Or if you have seen it, get your Kleenex ready, because here's the very end of The Notebook.
all day through in that small cafe hi the children oh they're fine yeah they were here today little noah dave and he too <laughs> they're getting so big As the time goes, mm -hmm. it flies right home by. No, yes, it does. In every lovely summer day. Will you tell them I love them? Of course I Look, I'm sorry. I'll tell them, sweetheart. Remember that story you were reading to me? Yes. Do you think that I could be her tonight? Would that be all right? You know what we could do? Maybe we could get a car. We could go for a ride. We could get out of here and just go someplace. You want to? I don't. Not tonight, darling. Come on, why not? Wait. Why did you call me, darling? I don't know you. What's going on here? Am I supposed to know you? Allie. No. No! No! Allie, sweetheart. Hey, Allie, I love you. Stay with me. Don't No! Come. Who are you? I'm Noah. I'm Noah and you're Allie. What do you want? What are you doing here? Come on, baby. Don't come near me. Are you okay? Next week, Pastor Christian will preach on beaches and fried green tomatoes. <laughs> Worship will be led by Barbara Streisand. Don't miss next. I'm teasing. Why is that so powerful? And why did that touch me so deeply? Because in many ways, that's my story. I have spiritual dementia. Because week after week, I forget. I forget how much God loves me. And I need to be reminded. And so often, I just, it just slips out of my mind. You know, it's amazing. We come here to worship, and there might be a worship song, there might be a prayer, there might be a thing in the message, and all of a sudden, it just clicks, and you think, okay, I remember, gosh... I remember the gospel. I remember the truth of God's love for me. I can see it so clearly. And then we leave, and maybe something takes place on Monday morning, and all of a sudden, immediately, we just forget it. 
Why do we come here to worship week after week? Because we need to be reminded of God's relentless love and pursuit of us. We need to be reminded of God's love story because we forget it. That's why we're engaged in small groups. That's why we spend time together as believers, because we need to be reminded of the story. Because we forget it over and over and over again. So that's why I'm here today. That's why Christian's here every week. That's why the staff is here, to gently remind you of the love story that God has for you. Because we tend to so easily forget. So I don't know your story. You might be today in the throes of depression. You might be in the depths of sorrow. You might be in the midst of just untold tragedy. But there is a word of God here today that is for you. It is God's promise. It is God's truth. And the promise is this. We know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's not trite, it's not glib, it's not shallow, it's not patronizing, it's true. God is in complete control. That's your hope today. Be reminded of his love story for you. Let's pray together.